Green energy is officially here. The status quo is being shaken up and fossil fuels are now more than just dirty words. Water plays a massive role in this revolution. Join us to discover the water footprints of different types of energy, hydrogen production and unknown innovations, the possibility of net zero opiate production and the very real reality of earthquake interruptions as well as the return of our water consumer, this time in the form of a soon-to-be father. Welcome to the next episode of What is Water? So we have to pretend like this is the first time we've talked to each other since Christmas. Um, Okay, Ed, back, back. Um, after the Christmas break, how was your Christmas? Tell me all the exciting details of a Christmas in lockdown. So we had the last minute announcement that we couldn't go anywhere. So we were spent in London, uh, which is not my home hometown, but uh, did some exploring around, got to know the city a bit better, a few walks and stuff. So um, yeah, very different, I would say. But yeah, how was, how was yours? It was good. I, um, as you know, I came back to the UK. Um, uh, I came for a bit. Was meant to be here for, meant to be there for like three weeks. Shit started hitting the fan. Swiftly left the UK. Spent uh, my Christmas day in Spain, watching Netflix, and then, weirdly enough, in the evening, I went to an Irish pub and watched a traditional Irish band play. So uh, Christmas anywhere but Spain, I would say. For real, yeah, it's so strange how just completely different restrictions at that time of, uh, you know, when you cross, cross the border, hey? Oh, 100%, 100%. But that's over now, and it's a new year, uh, new podcasting, and for this episode, episode five, we are looking at water's use in the green energy revolution. Absolutely, yeah, it's a topic I've been really excited about from the start. You know, we're covering things like desalination. We're going to be talking to a really interesting guy called John, who works in in the, in the energy space, aren't we? He's going to talk about hydrogen energy, as is someone from Hydrogen East. And then, don't don't worry, guys, if you don't know what hydrogen is. Don't panic, they explain it all in a very, very simple way. Um, so Ed's excited about this episode. I'm nervous about this episode because this is the episode that I actually have the least to say due to my um, dismal lack of knowledge. But we're looking at energy use in the water sector, the water footprint of different energy sources. So kind of following on from our episode before about water footprinting of agriculture. Going to do like a top trumps from the worst offenders to the best. It's gonna be good. I'm excited um, to learn. I'm excited to learn on this episode. Really exciting. Yeah, and we know that the green energy revolution is coming, don't we, Nancy, as we, as it's been talked about so much, um, you know, in the news and in politics, certainly in UK um, recently, we know that electric cars are coming. We know that, uh, yeah, electricity is the future. There's, there's a whole climate movement which has just been ongoing with, with Greta and, you know, extinction rebellions, it's a massive, it's a massive topic and the water, water industry has a lot to do with it. You know, we're one of the biggest consumers of, of, of energy, um, you know, in, in the country. Yeah, I didn't actually know that. Like I said, you just don't really think about it, do you? You don't think water production is a high energy, like an energy efficient process. You kind of just don't really put the two together in no. your mind's eye. 
which is probably quite stupid of us when we work in this sector why wouldn't the water sector be one of the highest emitters of energy but yeah as ed said green energy is here it's ready for you yeah the question is are you ready for it <laughs> so <What>? let's <laughs> let's dive into this episode and uh, and let's see what we find out together all right ready we're ready yeah um john can you just fill us in about um who you work for what you do and your general background in energy yeah sure um yeah so my name's john taylor um i live in uh, east anglia in suffolk and i work as an energy project manager for an organization called the greater southeast energy hub so we're funded by the government's energy department base to work with um, local enterprise partnerships in the regions and local authorities and other partners to help accelerate the delivery of local energy projects in um, our patch of England. So um, as a team, we cover the greater southeast. So that stretches. It's basically the donut of councils surrounding London and London itself. So from Hampshire to Norfolk. Um, so. Yeah, we get involved in the whole energy system, really, and from uh, renewable energy generation to retrofitting buildings to alternative low carbon transport fuels for cars, and then especially how they all start to interact as they all become electrified. And yeah, that so sounds really, really intense and <laughs> and so, so beyond my knowledge and skill set. Hence why we've got you on, because we need you. We need Thank people you. like you to explain to our listeners. Um, in a in a sensible and in a, in a straightforward way, what it's all about and how it's working. Yeah. Um, so Ed, shall we start off with our first question? Yeah. Uh, uh, what is hydrogen energy and why is it so hot right now? It's like the most popular alternative energy source out there at the moment. I would say. So I think what makes it particularly interesting in terms of discussing it with water is. Um, Water, I suppose, is to hydrogen what crude oil is to petrol. It's pretty fundamental part of the whole picture. Um, so hydrogen doesn't exist in a kind of natural state in the environment um, as a molecule on its own. So um, it's not necessarily a fuel in itself, but it's kind of a form of energy storage. There's plenty of hydrogen out there, but it's bonded to oxygen as water, H2O. So one of the um, kind of uh, technologies that's really being developed to help produce it and scale it up is electrolysis, which is where you apply electricity to water to break apart those molecules into hydrogen as a pure form and oxygen as a pure form. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop right there with your chemistry talk. Before our brains explode, you need to get the informal lowdown on hydrogen energy because it's big. So we've enlisted the help of our regional expert, Michael Brown from Hydrogen East, to give us seven minutes in green energy heaven to explain more. Take it away, Michael. Hi there. Thanks to the What is Water team for having me on to speak with you today. I'm Michael Brown, working as an analyst at Hydrogen East. Hydrogen East is a new body formed in July 2020 to bring together interested parties and key stakeholders in the east of England 
looking to raise awareness of existing and potential hydrogen opportunities. We've got three big projects in the east of England, looking at one, transitioning Bacton gas terminal on the North Norfolk coast to become the first hydrogen gas terminal in the UK. Two, our New Anglia clean transport hub, looking to promote and facilitate the uptake of low carbon fuels, including hydrogen, across road, rail, agriculture, shipping and boating. And thirdly, we're putting thought towards an integrated clean energy hub surrounding Sizewell Nuclear Power Station in Suffolk and its nearby town of Leeston, which is committed to a net zero strategy. So, as the team at What Is Water said, over the next few minutes, I'm going to take you through a short crash course on hydrogen, highlighting firstly what it is and why it's being so hyped right now, speaking about the types of hydrogen and why water is such an important consideration when thinking about it. We'll touch on some of the barriers or issues that we think need to be looked at in respect of water, but also how we can address these and create a sustainable process in a world that's traveling towards net zero carbon emissions. Hydrogen was actually given its name by Antoine Lavoisier in 1783, who termed the element water creator. So hydrogen, as when burned, hydrogen produces water. Despite hydrogen having actually been used as a fuel for many years, you might have seen a huge push and hype around its role in achieving net zero emissions over the past few years, but especially in the past six to nine months. We've seen hydrogen strategies coming from Norway, Canada and the EU. We've seen lots of research and publications coming from academic and industrial bodies. And now we've seen the UK Prime Minister's 10-point plan, an energy white paper, committing funding to hydrogen and promise of a UK hydrogen strategy in early 2021. So why all the hype? Hydrogen presents an opportunity as a zero carbon gas alternative to natural gas, which is what we widely use today. Hydrogen can reach some of those hard to decarbonize sectors, including industry, such as steel and chemicals, transport, such as heavy goods vehicles, trains and agricultural machinery, which can be too heavy, travel distances too long, and be too expensive to electrify. There's also homes and buildings, offering consumers an alternative to switching away from their gas hobs and showers in areas where the electricity grid is highly constrained or too expensive to extend to remote areas. The important thing we must consider when we're thinking about hydrogen and what determines whether it is actually a net zero gas at all is how it's produced. Currently around 95% of the world's hydrogen is produced using fossil fuels, predominantly through steam methane reformation of natural gas. This produces a dirty carbon H2 gas called grey hydrogen. A lot of organisations globally see a transition pathway for hydrogen production through blue and then green hydrogen. Blue hydrogen is hydrogen that's produced through the same steam methane reformation process as grey hydrogen, but with the carbon emissions captured and stored. This isn't perfect, however, with an expected carbon capture rate of 90 to 95 percent. In the UK, blue hydrogen is seen as an opportunity to scale up hydrogen production using existing infrastructure, assets and skills in oil and gas, which allows the industry to decarbonize, but also create the economies of scale and an ability to establish a demand base 
for large-scale green hydrogen production. Green hydrogen is predominantly produced through electrolysis of water, splitting the H2O molecule into hydrogen and oxygen, and using electricity produced from renewables such as wind and solar. This is the ultimate goal in any hydrogen economy, and so continuing to scale up renewables will be vital. In producing green hydrogen, one fundamental difference is the requirement for water. The US Department of Energy has previously estimated a requirement of around 30 to 40 gallons of water for 10 kilograms of hydrogen, which is about the same as one full bath of water. But what can 10 kilograms of hydrogen get you? That will supply a full tank for 20 cars or heat for 10 homes or sufficient fuel for seven forklifts or one tractor. So all in all, not too bad on a small scale. And the Centre for International Energy and Environmental Policy estimate that water consumption for hydrogen is roughly similar to that that's being used for petroleum refinement already in the world today. We do have to think more about what impact scale up of a hydrogen economy will have on water stresses though, especially in drier regions where water is already scarce. We've had conversations with some food producers that are having challenges with accessing clean water already, with extraction licenses not being renewed. So what can be done? There is an opportunity here for desalination of water technology to really help in creating a clean supply of water without putting stresses on our existing networks and resources. And the UK is arguably well placed to take advantage of this, being surrounded by one of the largest untapped resources for energy in the North Sea. We can also think more about how we manage and use water. This can be at a consumer level, right up to the pumping and processing of water supply. There's also possibility to create a circular process whereby water produced through extracting energy from hydrogen can be captured and reused for the hydrogen production process. There's lots more to come in respect of research in this area, I'm sure, and it's one of the things we at Hydrogen East will be getting our teeth into over the coming months. And I'm sure we'll be working with Nancy and Water Resources East in understanding this subject in more detail. Water must be considered in any future hydrogen economy in order to create complete sustainability and fulfil the true potential of net zero. Um, so you told us, John, that you did work for your dissertation about the water footprint of different energy sources. Mm. Yeah, so I listened to your last week's episode where you looked at the water footprint of food. Um, and it's a similar thing I chose when I, I studied at the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales. Um, nice. And yeah, we did a whole uh, module on uh, the environmental impacts of water and sewage treatment. And I chose to look at the water footprint of energy sources as part of that. So um, yeah, in a similar way to uh, you need a certain amount of water to produce a volume of meat or food. Um, similarly, if you want to create an output of coal energy or gas energy, um, you actually need fresh water to do that. Same with nuclear power stations, because um, they, when you see the, the cooling towers of old-fashioned power stations, you see those that big plume of clouds coming out of them. That's all actually water used to cool them and drive the engines. 
so they actually intake quite a lot of, of water um, in the production of electricity. So I was interested to compare that um, compared to more renewable forms of energy like solar power and wind power, which are obviously a lot more static and aren't associated with that kind of vision of plumes of steam um, coming off them. So who, so what energy sources have like the worst water footprint and which one has the best? It's still a top trumps worst <laughs> versus best. Yeah, so probably at the kind of arguably the most difficult end of the scale, I suppose you've got nuclear power. Mm. So, um, like, for example, where I am in Suffolk, we've got Sizewell Sea. That's a coastal nuclear power station. So that actually intakes a lot of seawater, which cools the reactors um, and then is then discharged back into the sea. Um, it's completely separate from any radioactive elements, I believe. But there is always the risk of incidents like Fukushima, which is where the water and the seawater dangers come in. Um, yeah, and I'd rather, also, not, rather not yeah, have that, one yeah. of those in our, in our area. So, and there's also an environmental impact because occasionally these suck in a load of um, seaweed or shoals of fish, which then get stuck in the filters and cause the power plant to shut down completely until they can clean it. So, um, yeah, there's that kind of impact to consider as well. Um, similarly, with um, kind of inland gas and um, coal plants, where they're not next to the sea, they're drawing on. Um, freshwater resources from rivers or other sources to provide that cooling. So there's a further pressure on the water systems from those sources. And actually we see in some cases where you get drought or really high temperatures, these thermal power stations have to shut down. It's happened in France in a few years ago during a heat wave where they actually had to shut down some of these big power stations because um, the water was too hot to cool the um, power stations efficiently. So there's that further risk there. Probably next on this um, kind of getting better, I'd probably say is kind of biomass energy, um, where you're growing bio crops to go into either an anaerobic digester or a wood fuel boiler, perhaps. So if you're growing um, yeah, maize or other crops um, or trees and, or miscanthus, obviously they need watering as a crop. So there's um, a footprint impact to that as a feedstock for the um, fuel sources. Right. So growing growing crops just to make just to turn them into biomass just to create energy. Yeah, yeah. So um, as you discussed last week, yeah, you kind of there's the water footprint of wheat and soya and things like that. There's the water footprint of wood fuel for power stations or straw for power stations as a dedicated energy crop. Seems it's a really bit interesting. It is no, it's interesting. Mm. Kind of doesn't it seem a bit kind of wasteful? Like that food could be grown for people to eat, or that land could be used for mm. other crops. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. To be fair, and a lot of um, studies would show that a lot of the wider sustainability impacts of biofuels actually um, are greater than the benefits you get from displacing fossil fuel energy. So, um, again, the potential to scale that up is probably limited. So it's probably worth mentioning now the kind of really low impact energy sources in terms of water. Yeah, go for um, it. So I'd say, yeah, the second best is probably solar panels. Mm. So um, either roof mounted or ground mounted, it doesn't matter too much. Um, so really the only water use here is cleaning them. Um, yeah, they don't 
need any other process for the water there's probably a bit in the manufacture of them but in terms of the lifetime and the operation of them they just need cleaning from time to time um, I've got some on my roof here and um, it's generally up to the rain to clean it they've kind of got self-cleaning properties in that sense um, literally the day I got them installed a seagull came and splattered all over them <laughs> which is perfect timing but yeah within a few weeks that had disappeared on its own accord I did ask a window cleaner to see if he had something long to go and clean it but it was a bit new to him but maybe there's a market there oh yeah like um just a, a window cleaner that only cleans solar panels yeah so yeah that's how I've experienced it I think where you see solar panels appearing in more tropical um, Mediterranean North African areas Middle East where it's in deserts then I think they have issues with dust getting on the panels and impacting their um, uh, capacity to generate. So I guess there's um, a bit of uh, an impact there if they need to keep those clean and productive. That's so interesting that you say that because I read that Morocco wants to become this like massive solar powered energy exporter. I mean, they've got yeah. loads of desert. They might as well just fill it with yeah. like solar panels, fields of fields of solar panels. Yeah. Um, yeah, good consideration. Yeah, and, and, like the further south you go from the UK, the solar resource virtually becomes unlimited. And I'm sure that's the direction we're going to head in is these countries that currently export oil and gas, they're going to shift to exporting solar power in the form of hydrogen, probably. Other technologies, um, obviously wind power is the other one. Um, you've got the offshore, which is um, kind of out in the water. But and again, onshore ones, they don't really have uh, much of a water footprint. I would say other than in the manufacture yeah they don't need cleaning really um yeah they it might get some ice build up but that's the only impact it's pretty minimal so they i would say wind turbines have the lowest water footprints of all um, energy technologies that's awesome it's interesting that mm. some of these methods don't have uh, the ability to recycle the, their water is that just um I, there are examples that do have that kind of closed loop water system so another Suffolk project, um, we've got a big sugar beet factory um, here in Suffolk. So it's a big crop that's grown and a really big intensive energy user in terms of you've got to boil off yeah, um, the product to extract the sugar. Mm. But I know that they do kind of have a closed loop water system there where all the water that evaporates off the process gets condensed and then just re-looped back into the system and in fact they don't import any water from this to the site I believe all the water they use is actually um comes out of the sugar beet itself that's really so, cool so yeah. they kind of like yeah they just dehydrate the sugar beet and every all the water that's in the crop already they just keep in that closed loop circular system so there are some really good kind of circular models out there and um, do you do any work or uh, have you know conversations or anything like this with the water companies about what they're doing to reach net zero targets and become more energy efficient overall. Yeah, um, yeah, that's where we met, wasn't it? It was an um, innovation event um, looking at exactly this topic um, was about the sustainability of the water sector. So yeah, they're a really big part of certainly the region's energy infrastructure. Um, I think the water companies are perhaps some of the biggest singular um, energy users out of all the businesses out there, um, especially in somewhere like East Anglia where um, it's a flat landscape, so there's lots of energy use used in pumping water around mm. and moving it place to place. Um, there's obviously water involved in extracting it from aquifers and purifying it in treatment plants. 
so there's big um, energy needs at places like that. Do you think um, it's it's possible for a water company to become net zero if they are expelling all of that energy for you know X, Y, and Z? Um, yeah, I think the way things are going, I think it's possible for any company to go net zero. And um, I think the uh, water companies in the region have really switched on to sustainability and have some really good, ambitious net zero plans. Um, Anglian Water, um, um, I know, already has already got a huge investment program into renewable energy and they've already got quite um, a big solar energy program at a lot of their sites where they're building out solar farms and connecting them directly to the facilities so bypassing to the electricity grid just to provide power for their sites and also uh, so just just for anyone net zero is when you are giving out the same amount of energy as you're saving or something like this or where it becomes where <laughs> i know what it means but i don't know yeah. how to explain yeah. it yeah, it's particularly related to um, the carbon emissions. So um, it means that in all the processes of the business and all the energy you use, the carbon footprint is on um, a balance, it's zero. So you, everything you do, you emit no extra emissions into the atmosphere. Um, so the net bit means that you may still have some unavoidable carbon emissions, but you can use the landscape um, and planting and trees and potentially other algae, anything like that to photosynthesize and then recapture and sequester that carbon back into the landscape. So basically cancelling yourself out. Yeah. Now just remembered another renewable energy technology that might even have a better water footprint than um, a wind turbine. Um, have you ever heard of photovoltaics? Oh, yeah, uh, I talk about it every uh, day. Yeah, especially yeah. with my mum, actually, over cups of tea and biscuits. Yeah, so photovoltaics are where you put solar panels on a floating raft over a reservoir. What? Mm. So, yeah, and um, the reason it would have such a good water footprint is because it would reduce the water evaporation in the reservoir. So it would have a net benefit for the water company and that, yeah, water that would be evaporated off into the atmosphere would be stopped by the shade from the solar panels brilliant could even stop your algae growing in your reservoirs as well yeah i'm sure there's uh, multiple benefits from it but i think that's got a huge amount of potential because then you're not taking up land that's competing with other uses that, um, you can imagine one just floating over the hoover dam or like rutland water or something like that more bloodshed <laughs> window cleaners solar panel cleaners and this is where the window cleaners come in and then they're, they're there they live on site they do like daily cleanings of the solar panels. Yeah, I can It'll solve the employment crisis. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. But you know, you're just going to get someone that's like, well, it doesn't make the reservoir look very nice. So I yeah. don't agree with it. And you're just going to get a whole anti-lobbying thing. It's a but... bit like the wind, isn't it? With oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, like, hmm. I can't think of anything better than opening my curtains and seeing, you know, like, a wind turbine and a solar panel because it's like a sign of the times and it's a sign mm. of like future and, and everything like that but you know that some people just don't like that for whatever reason it's the area i'm most interested in to be honest is um community-owned energy schemes so mm. it i'm that's particularly what i spend a lot of time on is trying to encourage communities to be proactive about this and actually develop solar farms and wind farms and themselves so rather than having developments imposed on them by other companies they actually kind of take some ownership of it um, and then they can design it in a way that they're happy with. Plus, they then own that um, 
equipment going forward and so will the profit that would have disappeared off to other investors is then retained in the community for them to invest in other good things that they want to do sounds Absolutely. like an intriguing mm-hmm. are there any examples of where that's that's happened in the uk so far um yeah there's quite a few um there's a lot down in sussex um where i spend a lot of time oxfordshire we're trying to get off the ground in east anglia as well um there's a some groups in particular in Cambridgeshire that are looking to work with the water companies. Some are looking to develop solar farms, particularly to then connect to a water treatment plant um, to yeah, sell the power to the water companies, um, which I'd really like to see happen. And then also we've got community groups looking at renewable heating. We've just given a grant to a number of um, villages who surround Grafham Reservoir. Mm. Um, and what they want to do is see if they can extract heat from the reservoir to then heat the homes in the village and get them off oil. And what technology would that involve? Yeah, so this is a whole new kind of with covered electricity, but this is um, moving on to heating now. So yeah. this would be a technology called a water source heat pump. Very efficient way of using electricity to run that compressor to then move the heat from the lake into people's buildings. And obviously you can then run that on solar or wind power then you've got this yeah whole zero carbon electricity and heating system without the use of fossil fuels so um is the kind of basic technology behind it is the mechanism you would have in your fridge so you know you've got kind of a little bit of a electric compressor around the back of your fridge and the way that does is it takes heat out of the inside of the fridge and dumps into your kitchen well a water source heat pump is like one of those but scaled up massively so you would have a big loop of pipework in the body of water which would extract heat from the reservoir. You would then have some kind of electric compressor which then upgrades the heat to a temperature that's unusable in the buildings. That's amazing. Sounds like uh, another another part we're going to potentially be coming on to in this podcast around um, using waste heat from sewage treatment um, processes and, and um, biogas mm. generation. Yeah, there is a lot of heat generated um, in that kind of sewage decom- decomposition um, process. It's all um, part of also making sewage yeah. sexy as well. And seeing yeah. that this is something that happens behind closed doors, like down the road or whatever. And sometimes it give, gives off a horrible smell, but it can actually mm. be used for something useful. Yeah. So I know already here in Ipswich, where um, there's one of the Anglian water sewage treatment plants, they have an anaerobic digester on site. So they're adding bacteria into the um, it's basically the chemistry that happens in a cow's stomach when they're fermenting grass. Um, they add bacteria into this vessel where all the sewage goes and it breaks it down into um, biogas. They turn that sewage into an energy source um, uh, through biogas, um, which is then yeah, used then to generate electricity or heat for buildings. And then the, what the residue is then very rich in nutrients, like all the phosphates and fertilizers that farmers need. And that's then applied back to the, the land. So, And you mentioned extracting heat from sewers and um, that just now. And again, there's a, a, a greenhouse project that's just been built in Suffolk, which is using a heat pump to extract excess heat from the local sewage treatment works. And then they're using it to create an environment to grow um, tomatoes and um, aubergines and uh, all the other kind of yeah hard to grow crops in the UK. So these greenhouses, there's two of them that have been built. They're bigger than the O2 Arena wow. scale. 
They're the world's first greenhouses, which are being heated solely from water treatment plants. Um, and they're going to be growing tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and everything like this to try and reduce our reliance on countries like southern Spain, for example, that mm. um, whose water supplies are obviously very vulnerable, yet we get so many of our tomatoes from them. And then they're doing all this um, rainwater harvesting stuff on the roofs, capturing all of that, mm. putting that into the system. Um, and it's like all controlled by AI and it's all like really cool and funky and a sign of the sign of the future, I think. And the, I mean, the fact that they've got 43 other sites in the UK that they want to use and expand. I mean, who even knows what the future is going to look mm. like in 50 years? Maybe all of our tomatoes will be from the UK. It's going to produce 10 times more food with 10 times less water. Yeah, there is a, a greenhouse. Um, it's not connected to the water treatment works as far as I know but um, it's uh, you, I can see the grow lamps when I go past it that uh, yeah you can power, again renewable electricity from offshore wind or something like that powering the grow lamps to create the kind of sunlight for the crops to grow in winter and then if you've got a, a renewable heating source to run the process then a lot of the arguments about greenhouse growing in the UK having a high carbon footprint because it's gas heated go away. Sorry, guys, there's just um, an earthquake. Just give me, just hang on a second. <laughs> okay, it's, okay, it's stopped, it's stopped. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it happens, it's happened like five times this week. You never know when it's going to stop, so you kind of just have to sit down and just wait for it to finish. Welcome to southern Spain. They didn't mention that on the uh, welcome pamphlet, i tell you that. Uh, there is a kind of a flip side that we shouldn't go too far. Well, there is a kind of knock-on effect from the renewables as well what's so that reading it because often we hear about um yeah solar power being deployed in developing countries and giving people energy access which is a fantastic thing but i read something the other day about um it's being a bit abused in afghanistan um so the rural farmers of afghanistan are growing opium poppies um which is what they do that's how they get on with business but um, previously they used to use diesel generators to extract groundwater to grow the crops but they've now converted to solar power which is now far cheaper for them so their opium yields are booming but they're over extracting the groundwater oh dear oh it's so, kind of kind of like that oh, what's the the um oh gosh who is it where you say where you, it's kind of like the palm oil thing isn't it like palm oil yeah. is meant to be cheaper to produce but then people just mm. ended up producing 10 times more than they using yeah. than they were so yeah I, I yeah that's one thing yeah the unintended consequences of a good thing like that is um yeah just applied in a situation we hadn't planned for but um it generally i think that's on balance a quite a minor downtick for all the other upticks we've seen so well at least then you can get kind of um heroin mm. and opiates which have you know that are net zero and um, yeah, fair, trade. <laughs> fair trade like organically produced and things like that you know there's a market for everything these days mm. so what's happening we're recording already Depression in your voice. Yeah, we're recording already because I like to get those primo, you know, like beginning hellos and everything like that. Lloyd is about to become a father for the very first time. The baby yep. is imminent. 
um any day you, now any day now if you need to cancel our call um i mean you know you can do that you can do that it's okay you have my permission <laughs> yeah um so lloyd you've seen you've listened rather to the podcast thus far yeah coincidence really as well seeing as i'm a an amateur solar panel cleaner myself <laughs> what do you mean oh well i, I well i don't I haven't tried cleaning solar panels yet, but I've been practicing on windows. Uh, weapon of choice being that uh, squeegee and vacuum karcher uh, tool. I'm not sponsored. Lloyd's uh, always looking for a side hustle. His side hustle at the moment <laughs> is um, getting Pokemon cards from, from back in the day and um, you know keeping them really nice. Is this in the hope that one day you'll be able to sell them for big bucks? I'm just a hoarder in general, so I just oh, like okay. to... I just like to collect things. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so what did you, what, what about the podcast, like the, the technologies you talked about, which one did you think was the coolest? Um, well, I, I thought it was quite interesting knowing that the hydrogen itself, the name of it was Water Creator. I, I, I hadn't heard that before. So it was, it was interesting and new to me. Um, shocked by the 95% fossil fuel gray hydrogen, it made me quickly check up on the current stock that I'm investing in to make sure that they were in fact yeah. a, uh, a green provider of hydrogen, which they, they are. are. They? They are. Yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll leave that in there for now. Um, in the old portfolio. <laughs> yeah. Portfolio of, of one, <laughs> one state. I think I'm um, investing in, in a, in a hydrogen company. If you're, if your bag of stocks and shares is definitely the way to go. Um, which kind of leads me on to my question of what do you think the future will be like? with these new technologies yeah well like i'm kind of hoping that houses individually will be a little bit more kind of off-grid where um you have the capability to have something like a solar panel on your roof or a roof made of solar panels for them to be kind of fed down into a, a local battery system where you can power your house all through electricity um one of the things that kind of makes that difficult right now is although there is government funding it's still quite expensive for the average mm -hmm. person to kind of take that up and switch over so although morally I'd like to I, I don't feel like I have the purse to to do that myself at the moment um Lloyd lives in in the country in okay. a small village uh in in uh in Norfolk I won't reveal your exact location um and you live in a how old your house like hundreds and hundreds of years old a couple of hundred but it's, yeah. it's currently on on heating oil which makes yeah. me feel bad but yeah 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 well, it's not your yeah. fault. You're just you're just a product of the system, man. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. But um, me and Louis always talk about like building our houses or changing houses, like our houses and how we would make them really cool and and environmentally friendly and sustainable. Yeah, having grey grey water systems, rainwater harvesting systems, the heat pump loop system. Um, there was a government scheme actually. I think it's still going where you could apply for this like green fund in the UK and they would give you money or uh, subsidize you in order to purchase and to make these changes to your house. Did you know about that? Yeah, I believe it ends in March. Um, and I think it's quite a, quite a long process to, to get the voucher delivered and you still have an outlay yourself. Are you so going to go a, for it, a, mate? Are you going to pull the trigger? Probably not this time round, but maybe, maybe next time when there's a, uh, some more funds kicking around that haven't been spent on prams and and car seats and so we go forward to the future and um what kind of environment do you want your your child to grow up in 
it's a we kind of feel like we're responsible for the next generation yeah so i mean it's interesting like even for the company i work for at the moment they have a um, a mind body and earth team um yeah. where, they're, where they're trying to get people more into meditation and sleeping well so they can uh function better at work and right, I'm right, right. at the moment just trying to investigate what the earth part accounts for so <laughs> please I've, tell me what that is please get back to me well yeah exactly I've, I've gone in and i've asked um do we do we have any kind of offset for our carbon emissions and any um carbon neutral and potentially even negative aspirations uh currently i don't have a reply on it but it's something that i would keep prodding lloyd what line of work are you in uh, IT software, but I'm not going to have this as a marketing pitch or sell it. It's not <laughs> someone else's job. I don't get commissioned for that. <laughs> no, no, this is neither the time nor the place, Lloyd, to um, prop up your own interests. I'm afraid. No, um, no. that's just what, the day job. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why do we? Um, when we're talking about water, why? Why do we still talk about it in gallons rather than liters? What's going on there? I think it's. Is that a marketing aspect? Because 30 gallons sounds a lot less than 113 liters to get 10 kilograms of hydrogen to power your 20 cars. Well, in in the industry, in the sector, we measure in megaliters per day. So I think okay. that might just have been what Michael was talking about, because that's how they talk about it in their in their field. You know, in the hydrogen world. But but I get what you mean. It's very confusing. I have no idea. I have couldn't even tell you how much a gallon is. Absolutely no so idea. That's 113, I checked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sorry, that's that's 30, 30 gallons. I was I was kind of interested about the sizable power station being on the on the coast and then using the the seawater for, for cooling. Does that have to kind of go through any kind of um desal process before it's used for cooling, or do they just use it as as salty seawater? And if well, I mean if, if if it is just used as seawater, then why aren't all the power stations just on the coast doing rather than drawing from a freshwater source yeah. inland. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, for which I don't know the answer. And even even though the new the new the unbuilt Sizewell operation is just, you know, controversial because you kind of just think John Taylor was talking about you know, wind power, solar power, photovoltaics, you know, we've got the solar panels on the river um, or on a reservoir. I hadn't heard um, of that. That was interesting. No, me neither. It just seems to me that there's so many more options and the risks that come with nuclear generation, I don't think they offset the offset the benefits when the benefits of all the others are so much bigger. Um, and then, but while we've, you know, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, Boris Johnson's approving a new deep coal pit mine, which is just completely hypocritical in my opinion. Yeah, we have another friend though that makes a point about the steel production and we do need alternatives on, on how to produce steel um so but, that, that is an interesting point but there's other but, ways of doing it there's other ways of doing it i don't understand um yes and you, you need to feed the innovation by choking the supply of feed the innovation by choking the supply. <laughs> so forcing people to be innovative and forcing people to be more efficient is that what you're yeah saying? evolve or die yeah you're not wrong you're not wrong that's that's no. the saying that's there's a couple of um, power sources that weren't mentioned earlier on which i, I thought was interesting like hydroelectric dams and um those tidal generation because I think tidal is supposed to be notoriously difficult, isn't it? Because yeah. it's it's hard to maintain all yeah. of the moving parts. Yeah, um, yeah. And hydro hydroelectric dams are a bit old school now, I would say, um, because of the repercussions they can have for, for example, sediment loading in a river, river ecology. Um, 
and the sheer like that that's like great infrastructure so you, you have to build so much to to even just get them going um, and to get them productive and then let's say you've got a massive dam and in 30 40 50 years it's not needed anymore then obviously taking down that dam or whatever you would do with it um they are very popular in and i say this in air quotes developing countries um, for example, all along the Mekong River, which I did so much research on when I was doing my master's degree. And um, it can become very messy from a political, cultural, social perspective. Um, in the UK, obviously, we, we're an island, so we don't have to worry about any transboundary conflict when it comes to, to hydro dams on rivers that cross borders. I just think there's no need. I just I think we're the UK is at a place now where they it's just not even something they consider. But there's pros and cons with every green technology, especially the ones that involve water. The question is, you have to figure out which is the which one has the least cons for the most benefit. And the idea about desalination as well. Yeah. So yeah, you could put desalination plants all all around the UK, but then you're pumping out really salty water at the end of that process back into the sea. What what does that, what disadvantages yeah. does that have for ecology? Currently, uh, a lot of desalination plants are run off fossil fuels. So you need to find a way of hooking up a renewable energy source to the desalination plant. And the longevity of desalination plants aren't very long. Maintenance, et cetera, cost, da, 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 da. I think one of the most important things is to kind of convert the average house into a more green dwelling, I'd say. But it, it is difficult to kind of persuade the average person to to spend their hard-earned cash on on something that they're. I mean, they're not immediately seeing a benefit from, are they? Apart from from like a a morality perspective, where you mm -hmm. know that you're helping the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's almost something that the government kind of really need to step up and figure out a way of swapping people over and without it hurting their wallet too much maybe just a massive investment but so you have to the idea is to build new houses in this new mindset more sustainable greener you know with water harvesting systems you know all of this all the bells and whistles but it goes so much deeper than that because there's policy and legislation that developers build to developers bottom line is basically I need to get the most houses on this plot for the most amount yep. of money. And if putting in all of the, these extra systems, infrastructure into these houses to make them green, cost them, eats into their profits, they're just not going to buy it. And so they're going to, in my opinion, they need to be forced to do it. So it needs to be a legal requirement that they do these things. I agree. And then I was thinking if all the houses... Uh, become retrofitted with more insulation so they don't use as much energy they don't use as much water then obviously the energy companies and the water companies don't get as much money from bills because the energy that they're using isn't as much yeah this is why we don't have toilet flush leak detectors in all of our systems <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and water metering is only just starting to become a popular thing um yeah i don't know lloyd I don't know, man. What can we do? What can we do? Sit and wait. <laughs> sit and wait. Sit and wait. Sit and wait. John, um, I edited a bit out of the podcast um, by accident, which was a shame, but I can't bring it back from the dead, unfortunately. But okay. John Taylor, who, um, who we talked to for the majority of the podcast, he said he's been working in climate change and sustainability 
for over 10 years and he felt really hopeful for the future that green energy will become cheaper it will be able to be scaled better and it will become more widely available so I feel like everything's going to be all right I feel more confident about this episode than I have previous episodes what do you think yeah well yeah I think that people are kind of going that way personally myself I when I look for an energy deal I would only look at companies that are 100% renewable and I think more people are kind of getting in that frame of mind to do the same unfortunately I think some people won't make a change until they see the affecting problem so perhaps when the water floods into their house they might make the decision to swap to electricity that's renewable um so i think it's yeah it's a little bit of each but i would i would say i'm probably more positive than not thanks for that thanks for your time you've been a really well-rounded podcast guest i would say water consumer it's Um, my first time (laughs) well your first time on a podcast ever ever yeah i mean i've been on zoom calls before (laughs) plenty in the last year but this is my first podcast although i suppose some of the zoom calls have been recorded and that could you know, just shut the screen and listen to it. And that's it. You've got yourself a podcast. The, uh, the What Is Water podcast, making podcasting uh, dreams come true and breaking podcast virginities the world over. <laughs> Bye, Lloyd. I'll talk, I'll talk to you on WhatsApp. Thanks for that. Perfect. Thanks. Bye. 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 Water is power, politics, conflict and resolution. And it's a story that plays out all over the world every day. Join us on our next episode as we unpack the drama unfolding right now on the River Nile and show you a side of water that you never thought existed. When water is politics, who really holds the power? Does it matter? Why can't everyone just get along? Tune in next time to What is Water?